2017. I'm Jeremiah Zimmerman, and this is episode 129 of the 5049 podcast. How you guys doing? You all right? Thank you for joining us for another conversation about music, about about life, about career, about creativity, about about everything that goes along with it. Thanks for joining us for that conversation between myself and another musician. Today that musician is pianist, composer, blogger, jazz scholar, Ethan Iverson. That's who you hear back there. Uh, today it's a good one. Um, we're going to get right into that. Before we do, I want to talk about a couple of things, a couple of things to talk about. First up, um, a few months ago, uh, when Brian Chase was on the show, I said that I was going to be starting a series of digital-only releases uh, through the 5049 label, and it hasn't happened yet. It is going to happen. The first release under the digital series uh, that I'll be putting out is coming out September 16th. It's a Saturday. It's a weird day to put uh, to officially release something, but it's an auspicious date uh, in astrology and feng shui. And if I've learned anything from my wife, it's to pay attention to these things. So the first release in the digital series is coming out September 16th. It's a double live record uh, from my band, Blood Mist, which is me, Toby Driver, Mario Diaz de Leon. It's two full-length, multi-track recorded concerts, one from 2016, the other from 2017. Uh, and I'm really proud of this music. I, I think this band has developed a lot, uh, especially since we put out our first record. And and I think that this band really works best live. No overdubs, just live and and in, in a completely improvised setting. So that's coming out September 16th. Uh, I will have more information on it soon, but, but I'm excited that that's finally going to be happening. Blood Mist. The record's called Chaos of Memory. The other thing I want to talk to you guys about, uh, I just want to once again uh, suggest that if you are enjoying this show and you you know you want to help it out, you want you want to see it uh, uh, strengthen, um, visit the Patreon page that I've created. It's patreon.com slash five zero four nine podcast. You could sign up for a monthly pledge, and and all of that money goes directly back into this show. You may uh, have noticed, you know, uh, incremental quality increases. Well, a lot of that is from that funding. It, it's, it's allowed me to invest in better recording equipment. It's allowed me to invest in a more functional computer that, that you know, lessens the amount of time that I have to work on this stuff. And it helps. So just know that if you're contributing money through the Patreon, that's where it's going. It's not going to any other aspect of my life. All right. Today on the show, um, Ethan Iverson. This is an interesting one today. It's an interesting one uh, for a number of reasons. And I, I guess I should start by saying that, you know, most, most people who are familiar with Ethan are probably familiar with him through his work with his uh, band that he's co-led for almost two decades, uh, The Bad Plus. The Bad Plus for the last <clears throat> 17 years has been Ethan Iverson with Dave King and Reed Anderson. Now, I've been aware of the Bad Plus for a really long time, though, and, and I, I cop to it on the show today that I, I don't really have much familiarity with their music. I, I know, I remember in around 2002, 2003, seeing the name everywhere, and, and, and actually, you know, Ethan uh, described something that I remember quite clearly, which was going into Tower Records on West 4th Street, and there being like a huge 
uh, poster of the Bad Plus. They were really sort of being presented as this game-changing uh, uh, jazz trio. And how can I say this? In the world of jazz, and I'm talking backstage, I'm not talking about what the audience perceives or what the critics really write about, um, musicians can be, uh, they can be a little catty, I think. Especially when another musician or another group um, achieves some level of success. In talking to Ethan, um, you know, this is a really cru- uh, this is an important time in his life. He's leaving the Bad Plus after 17 years. And, and there have been some articles published, and I didn't want to ask too many uh, personal questions, but I'll just say that the Bad Plus has done something very unique, something that very few people in jazz music have done. They've, they've, they've at least in, in, in contemporary jazz, they have existed completely within the marketplace. They've built a reputation, they've built a following, they have achieved a certain level of success that has been based purely on ticket sales and recordings. No grants, uh, none of that shit. And that's pretty uncommon. And when I spoke to Ethan, you know, I, I didn't know what to expect of this guy. You know, I was more familiar with um, his blog, Do the Math. His blog, Do the Math, uh, you know, it's been going pretty strong for, for a number of years. It's interviews with, with prominent jazz musicians. Certainly, Ethan and I have something in common in that we have, uh, you know, for, for good or ill, for, for whatever reason, we've ended up creating a large part, portion of our output has been around conversations with other musicians. And we talk about that today. You know, I've certainly had a lot of self-consciousness around that. In talking to Ethan, I found someone who uh, is very self-aware, who's very analytical, who is very thoughtful, who uh, I would say is very sensitive. This conversation surprised me uh, in a number of ways. I don't know what I was expecting, um, but y- y- you'll, see, you'll see what I'm talking about, I think. One thing I should say about this conversation and and potentially ones going forward for the next couple of months. Uh, th- I have a new neighbor down the hall who is doing a lot of construction work. And this conversation, I'm really sorry to say, you can hear a lot of construction noise in the background. And it's, it's very irritating, I know. Uh, try to deal with it. This is a good conversation today. The reason I'm putting it up today is uh, Ethan's got a pretty important gig coming up. September 12th, The Jazz Standard. He'll be playing in a trio with Ron Carter and Billy Hart. Now, certainly on this show, we've, I, I, I feel like we've talked a lot, um, you know, over the hundred plus episodes about these moments of when you get to play with the masters, when you get to interact creatively with the people who have inspired you with, um, you know, that it, it is one of the most special things that you get to experience as a musician. And I will speak uh, on behalf of Ethan and say this is an important uh, gathering of musicians, an important gig, and, and something I know means a lot to him. So if you're around on September 12th, go to the Jazz Standard. Get some of that, uh, that Danny Meyer barbecue and, and check out this trio. It's, you know, it's heavy. It's Ron Carter and Billy Hart. You know, what else do you need? September 12th, Jazz Standard. If you want to find out more about Ethan Iverson, go to ethaniverson.com. I think you're going to be hearing a lot more from him in the next year. Him, the name, Ethan Iverson, not The Bad Plus. The Bad Plus is going on. I should say that. Um, the Bad Plus has, uh, uh, will continue uh, just minus Ethan. And that's it. Uh, I hope you guys are cool. I, I think I think I did a good job on today's episode. Uh, let me know what you think. Here's my conversation 
with Ethan Iverson. solos which i don't know i kind of came to john carter late in life um is that your instrument clarinet clarinet yeah yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, i'm sorry i should have researched your own music man I'm just, i'll give you some shit do you still so, do you still have the ability to play cds yes so i'll give you some. even buy cds all the time really yeah. do you do it in person or you just do it like online mostly online but once in a while in person yeah where do you go i mean on the road Mm-hmm. I do, do go to uh, Downtown Music Gallery. It's a little out of the way now. It is. Basically, I go to Downtown a couple times a year now, and I'm going in two weeks. I go to Amoeba Records in Hollywood while I'm out in L.A., and there I'll usually drop four the or five hundred. problem, I mean, Jessity's this is a huge problem. These are my people. But I actually feel the real problem is just trying to understand the new classical music releases. Because that's How so? Well, there's no place to go to look at the new classical music. There used to be Tower Records. Yeah, and a few other places. Yeah. You know, where are you going to go for that now? Barnes & Noble? That's about what you're left with. Yeah, are you serious? Yeah. There are there, I mean, you travel a lot. Yeah. Do you know of any specialty stores throughout the country where there is a deep, well-curated, well-stocked classical section? I mean... Contemporary, let's say. Contemporary any, composition. Any other city than New York will have at least something. Yeah. New York is... A, it's, well, it's the rents are too crazy. Right. No, no, they all closed and nothing's replaced it. I don't know that anyone's doing it well. I mean, especially for contemporary composition. That's probably true. Like, there's certain labels that, and I, I don't need to mend. There, there are labels that are putting out interesting records, either new realizations that are well documented by you know 20th century composers, and then there's labels that are putting out well recorded, well produced documents of young contemporary composers, mm-hmm. but. I don't know how much success any of them are having. No. And no, I'm talking probably. about like conventional success. Yeah, no, of course. It's a dark time. I, but you're still making records. I'm thinking about it. I'm leaving the Bat Plus, so I'm like debating what my future is going to be, really. For recorded music? Well, I mean, are we already doing this by We're way? going, yeah. Uh, well. So, so you, yeah, you. you Keep Scaramucci in mind because we recorded. <laughs> you know, <laughs> probably. Well, you know, I see there's a John Zorn book up there. Yeah. Oh, yeah. This is like a collection of seven inches. You know, I think the way he sort of took it all on and did it all and did a did something for him in music. Mm-hmm. You know, then he had the label, then he had the stone. That seems to me. A little more viable than going to a company. Well, there are still a couple companies uh, out there. The the one in jazz that has power is ECM, right? And I love Manfred Eicher, and I love that label. Mm-hmm. And God bless him. And he's sort of interested in New York artists again now. In the past decade, in the way there was a sort of some wilderness years where hardly any New York mm-hmm. artists got recorded by ECM. So. You know, I've done a little bit of work with him, and maybe I'll get to do some more. You know, that would trump any of my own ideas. Sure. Because he's so awesome. His ears are so great. And the fact that he curates his music so carefully means that it's all 
really pretty good. And if you're uh-huh. if you if you work with ECM, it's real status, you know. Well, it's real status, but it's one of the bummers to me about where it's at with the current state of releasing recorded music is I I mean to me from the very from a very young age it's always been about making records. That's to me the most satisfying most like that's like the highest mountain in all of music. And I always liked and I think a lot of jazz musicians feel this way to engage with tradition. So when I got to release my first record on Zodic, to me that was a very crucial moment in my life and you know, the same way for a lot of people to play at the Vanguard for the first time. Mm-hmm. Um, or to, and I feel like ECM has that. To be included in that roster is, is an achievement. It's an honor. It's, it's doing something that has, you know. Absolutely. And I, I feel bummed that as exciting as it is, because I release all my own stuff now, and I'm kind of looking at new ways to do that. I wish that there, those opportunities were still there for that reason, not because of the distribution or or any of that stuff but for that personal feeling of achievement it's a great point like what are our goals now you know how do we assess where we're at in terms of the art that we make i mean i brought up zorn partially because i think he managed somehow to make his own set of uh goals Mm mm-hmm you know, he does a lot of stuff. He did a lot of stuff to satisfy himself. He does it all to satisfy himself. You know, yeah. And that I think is actually helpful to think about. Right. You know, in this new future, I, I, I think we got to do things that we think are just the correct thing to do. You know, for music with a capital M. Well, that's a good thing. That I mean, it's it's a reality check. It's a it's a it calls into question your personal standards charles ives said somewhere something like the real music will be made when the last person who made music for money is gone and gone forever right you know I mean, that's like you know that's that's one side on the other hand jazz which is my really what i'm about is jazz uh-huh. all the great jazz that i love of the 20th century was very much a commercial proposition 100 percent Hundred percent. I mean, Miles Davis drove a Lamborghini. Yeah, but it doesn't even matter. I mean, we can cite Miles Davis. That's like citing just the most famous person sure. ever. But any of it really was all through hard ticket sales and hard LP or seventy eight sales. Mm-hmm. You know, every step of the way from learning something about the art to making a record was sort of about are people going to buy this music do people need this music to buy it and that's that's true whether it's someone like hank mobley or blues pianist albert ammons or whoever you know mm-hmm. it's like it was a commercial setup it was the american experiment written down on wax and ticket sales mm-hmm. you know so i also think that's important to think and to consider and i'm actually very proud that the bad plus the group that I'm associated with for so long here, you know, was a sort of like a hard ticket sales and record sales group. That group has existed within the marketplace. Exactly. Yes. You know, not a single grant or uh, sort of, you know, whatever uh, support, you know, non-capitalist support, none of that existed for us. It's all been within that old system. Yeah. Yeah, you've you've built an audience and you've toured and made records and sold them. There, when I think about things in these terms, 
I have to face my sort of Republican side. You know, not I, I'm not saying I have an inner Trump, but the part of of me that I want my music as strange or as esoteric as it might be to exist within the marketplace. And I recognize that historically we have figures like Ornette Coleman, who, you know, has influenced, in my opinion, everything, you know, not just music, but he existed because of the cigar chompers at the record company who took a chance on something, even if they didn't understand it. And he was able to, you know, get to the level that he got to and influence, exert the amount of influence that he did because he had the power of a major record label behind him. Mm -hmm. And he's one example of many. And, and, you know, there's a lot to be said for a group that, or a musician that works to engage an audience. There are so many sides of this. I was talking to James Newton, who I love and admire so much about Duke Ellington. And he, I mean, I probably shouldn't speak for him exactly. Sure. But he left me sort of rethinking something I always thought about Ellington, which is this is a man who made perhaps the greatest body, I mean, shall we say the largest body of great art of music in the 20th century. And he did it, he did it on, within the capitalist framework. Mm -hmm. But James Newton suggested to me, you know, what would have Ellington been, been able to do if he didn't have to work like that, if he was just funded? Could he have written another kind of, another level of composition and sort of, if he had time, if he had some other kind of space around his head, mm -hmm. what would he have been capable of? And I think that's actually a very good question. So I it's, see both sides. It is a good question. And my first instinct, and maybe this reveals who I really am, is I feel like, oh, maybe it wouldn't have been as compelling. Maybe it wouldn't have been as powerful. Maybe, you know, I always look, you know, and, and I think you and I come from, you know, similar places, but also quite different places. I know a lot of people in the last 10 years who have uh, chosen to move to Berlin because it it's a lifestyle that, is believed to contribute to one's art making. And I see, you know, and I'm sorry to sound like an asshole, but I see a lot of sort of emaciated, as I would describe it, art coming from that from that scene. I, I don't get the sense of power that I'm looking for. It's traditional among certain straight-ahead jazz groups or a certain kind of scene in America to make fun of European jazz musicians because they get grants. Right. You know, like... It really makes your music better if you have to sort of tough it out in America. I subscribe know. to that thinking. You know, I, you know, I, I wouldn't want to make a ruling either way, but I think it's worth bearing in mind. It's worth bearing in mind, and I'm ultra um, sensitive to that concept. Or I, I, I'm thinking about it more deeply because I've seen uh, th th there, there's been a lot of identity politics shall we say that have come to the fore and and for good they make me question my own thinking they make me question my how i relate to things um that mask i'm like I'm, I'm i'm nervous just to even sort of present the idea right now and i want to choose my words very carefully um i know a guy who just graduated from he just finished his grad graduate work at a, a liberal arts college and this is a guy who grew up playing the horn and he likes to blow. And he can, and he's great. Uh, and he felt ostracized his entire time there because the concept of a guy with a horn blowing his guts out for a lot of people has come to represent this hyper-masculine, sort of outdated, uh, patriarchal approach to art making. 
so that's what I, I I need to be careful. I feel like I need to be careful about. I do have a instinctive ruling about that. Is you know, as a white man, I feel like I don't have too much of a right to make pronouncements about this topic. Right. However, I also feel the universities are very elite. They always have been. That's why I didn't go. You know, so it's like this is not the sharp end of where this stuff is getting done about like change in society. Mm-hmm. You know, it just seems to me like these you got these very small pools of people who are in power struggles with each other and they're very young and it's like this sort of petri dish where you know group think that isn't necessarily positive can run wild. Mm-hmm. There've been plenty of especially in the last 20 years my god plenty of women jazz musicians who can blow super strong, you know what I mean? Sure. That to me seems like like playing jazz great as a horn player. I mean, essentially you're dealing with great art and a great tradition. Mm-hmm. If you want to put in some heavy stuff against it, that to me just sounds like you just don't like that music, which is fine. You don't have to like right. it. But you can't tell me John Coltrane isn't great. Right. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. Um, you went to music school, no? I dropped out after two years of NYU, but I have had a lot of very important teachers. So, wait, are you from New York? I'm from Menominee, Wisconsin. Oh. And you grew up playing the piano from a young age? Yeah, I'm born in 1973, and my parents weren't musicians. I had to really... Struggle. I guess I was a, I don't know, want to say born musician or something, but I always liked music when I was around it, and it was a hard struggle to get it. To what? To get access to an instrument? Well, I had to buy a record player. I had to, you know... My parents were cool. They were liberal, and my mom, God bless her, got me up got me a piano when I was banging on one at the at the preschool. You know. Yeah. But then, you know, it it was what it was. They were drunks. My dad died at 50. Uh, it, was a, it was a bad scene in a lot of ways. And I actually think I have a strange relationship to this music that is based on, you know, to be a little perhaps overdramatic or psychoanalytical or something. But I didn't get love at home but i could organize my record collection and this was like a displacement activity where if i could just learn everything about jazz mm-hmm. that completed me as a human in a way that like just having screaming drunks as a parents were not helping you know right there was a lot of chaos at home yeah do you have brothers and sisters uh yes i have a brother seven years younger who is uh, disabled right right there is I re- when I was six years old, my father's fiance uh died very suddenly, and I remember the counselor at school bringing me into to his office and just to sort of check in and and i I remember him telling me, and this is advice that I've kept to this day, and it sounds like something you just said, which is when you feel like this feeling is taking you over and you can't do anything about it, just do something. Brush your teeth, make your bed, um, something to sort of exert some bit of control over your situation. 
And very early on, I translated that into my record collection, mm-hmm. um, which, as you can see in this room that we're sitting in, there's still sort of a protective wall. <laughs> I suspect many of us who have in crazy record collections are feeling some kind of lack of love otherwise. Yeah. You know, I don't want to throw anyone under the bus who's listening at, listening out there. If you're perfectly well balanced. And you just love music. And you just love music yeah. and have a big record collection. God bless you. Yeah. <laughs> you know, whoever you are. But I do think that, you know, it's, a, it's uh, in my case... I have a almost unhealthy obsessive relationship to it that I know was about you know just trying to do something. But you know, but that image of a young person going into their room and p- literally putting on headphones to block out what's around them, it's 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 a common image for a reason. And that was certainly my experience. For me, I was drawn very early on to aggressive music based around guitars and drums. Um was that ever a part of of your retreat from what you were trying to get out of? Or was it always been jazz? I didn't really have much of a relationship to any pop, rock, punk, yeah. any of those genres. I was always pretty against all of it. You know, like in high school, I thought it was evil. I thought all of it was horrible. You just thought it was bad music? Yeah, and bad for society. How so? Because I wasn't smart enough or something, you know. Right. Right. You were attracted to the intellectual aspects of jazz. Well, there's soulful stuff in jazz, too. Well, of course. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, the piano to me is, you know, and this is not a very profound observation, but it's, you know, you can look at the instrument and you can see the notes and it's a very, in a way, it's a very abstract instrument. Um, In a way, it's a very literal instrument. Was was any of that attractive to you about it? Because you could see the order of everything in front of you? That comment isn't really resonating with me. I mean, to maybe explain this absurd perspective that I was just talking about, you know, like in most pop and rock and punk and everything, there's, there's a backbeat, uh-huh. you know. And Billy Hart once suggested to me that the backbeat is a simplif- simplification of the clave. Okay. You know, whereas the clave is the stuff that's like hundreds of thousands of years old, or at least a couple of thousand years old, anyway. And it's this really profound information. Somehow in American rock and roll and stuff, it gets transmuted, in, transmuted into this sort of very basic version of a clave. You know, the, it's barely a sentence anymore. Mm-hmm. I like the story of um, Earl Palmer, who was a great New Orleans drummer. He was doing a record date with Dr. John, and they're trying to make a hit record of some sort. And Dr. John is talking to the producer, and he goes in and says to Earl Palmer, "You know, I'm sorry, they're giving me some heat here. You know, can you can you play a backbeat on this number?" Mm-hmm. And he takes his two sticks and runs them through the snare drum and leaves the studio. Hmm. And it's true that, like on any Blue Note record of the 60s, they're trying to make hit records. doesn't matter who the drummer is. They're not going to play a backbeat. They're going to play some more African version of uh, undulating, groovy beat. Mm-hmm. You know, so I am get how it's gotten really hip. Like, if you listen to a D'Angelo record, and now I'm really sounding square, like <laughs> quoting 
like as if I know anything about D'Angelo or whatever. Right. I don't. Okay, but I've checked it out to know enough to know that the backbeat click, you know, you know, uh, side stick in the middle of the stuff is really surrounded by incredibly advanced rhythmic information. Uh huh. You know, it's really gotten sophisticated on this stuff. At the same time. I could use even in that kind of music sometimes a little less backbeat, you know. But sure. Anyway, so that's sort of I've really mellowed on this topic, and I've I've been honored to have an association with David King, who is really a master of the backbeat. I mean, one of the greatest living, probably. He can mm-hmm. play a backbeat in a lot of different ways, and it's incredibly inspiring. Mm-hmm. However, if you're talking about the uh, fascist teenaged Ethan Iverson. Uh-huh. <laughs> you know, I thought the backbeat was evil. You thought it was evil? Yeah. You thought it dumbed down the music? Yeah. Yeah. Did you have <laughs> peers that shared this philosophy with you? Or were you sort of alone in your own little island of... I'm really surprised you even bother asking that question. <laughs> no. Yeah. I did not have It was peers. a lonely existence. Still is. Yeah. Yeah. When did you move to New York? 1991. And you moved here with the goal of working in music in New York. I mean, I was just such a jazz freak. Who turned you on to this shit? I mean, when you were a kid. Uh, Well, I think the first thing was just maybe whatever I heard off the television set, you know. uh, This would be what, like the late 70s, early 80s? Yeah, so like if a Pink Panther movie came on. Right, okay, Henry Mancini. Mancini. Okay, yeah. oh my God. You know, yeah. John Barry's music for a James Bond film. Right. You can't really say this is a jazz exactly, but at least it's a... It's an entry point. Entry point, right? Yeah. The, Vince Guaraldi for... Peanuts. For Charlie Brown. Yeah. You know, all that sort of stuff. There was, a, of course, as you probably know, there was a, on Mr. Rogers' Neighborhood, a really great jazz pianist. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Johnny Costa, I think his name yeah, was. He played like Fender Rhodes and Wurlitzer and stuff too, right? I mean, he definitely did some of that, but yeah. when he played piano, he was in the tradition of Art Tatum. Mm-hmm. The echo of Art Tatum is unquestionably in that mm-hmm. piano music for Mr. Rogers' Neighborhood, and God bless it, you know, for being so. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So any of that was like, that's what I liked. And then my first real love as a player, fifth or sixth grade, you know, I somehow really got into Boogie Woogie and tried to find records of Boogie Woogie from the 20s and 30s. And then I got into jazz, Count Basie, Duke Ellington, Louis Armstrong, all the earlier than bebop. I mean, in a way, I had a very natural progression where, like, I think a lot of people, Charlie Parker and bebop was too hard for me to understand. But Kind of Blue was like, oh, I like Kind of Blue. Yeah. So, and then I had to go back and fill in some bebop later. You know, I might not have really started to understand how profound Charlie Parker and Bud Powell were until my 20s. I mean, I think I had to move to New York and hang with people who really understood something mm-hmm. about that music before the key finally unlocked. Because I liked free jazz. Like, you cannot sort of understand Art Ensemble of Chicago, even John Coltrane. That stuff, you get it. The message is clear. You know, I suppose in my own way, Albert Eiler was like my punk rock period in high school. That's totally yeah, understandable. Totally makes total sense. Yeah. Later on, it's like, wait a minute, what about Charlie Parker? What about Bud Powell? And these these are the people that keep me up at night today, I would say. And like, I'm like worried about my Charlie Parker and my Bud Powell. 
Yeah, I, I don't think it's that uncommon for people to, as, as a listener's trajectory, to kind of go backwards like that. Um, I think it's common, too. I mean, certainly my first, the first jazz I got interested in, um, genuinely interested in, was free jazz, was improvised music, was stuff that had, on the surface, a lot to do with the, the music that I was listening to at the time. And then over the years, as I became more intellectually curious about the music, as you just described exactly, I'd be, you know, and now I'm like, I, I listen to fucking like West Coast cool jazz all the time whenever I listen to jazz, which I never would have envisioned. <laughs> I hear you. Um, but so when you came, when you came to New York, like what, what was your skill set that you were bringing with you and what did you envision for yourself uh, upon arrival? And how much did that match up with reality of what you came to? I just wanted to be around jazz. So actually the first night I came to New York, I went to the Village Vanguard and heard Joe Lovano and a Joe Lovano group with Tom Harrell, John Abercrombie, rest in peace. Yes. Rufus Reed and Ed Blackwell. And Ed Blackwell was just about my favorite drummer. And there I was at the Village Vanguard. Yeah, ground. I mean, that's where it is. You know, and it was just a great night. And I guess in the 90s, I got to saw, see a lot of people who've already moved on. You know, there's fewer and fewer jazz masters around and but in 91 through 98 or whatever there was still a bunch of people i saw that you know have, have since paul since, motion was he doing stuff there at the time or oh yeah i mean yeah. i saw Mo motion so many times and then i played with him a bit too yeah so, so um yeah he was huge of course absolutely that's kind of uh, an interesting thing about new york uh Especially at that time, and as you just said, more so because there are fewer and fewer masters. Um, you can just be around these guys as they're working. It's not like if you you know if you live somewhere else, you know, and they come and they play the festival, and you're a hundred yards away from them. But you're actually watching. You know, I remember watching. I saw um, Rashid Ali one night at Sweet Basil. I forget. I think it was like it was someplace, and between sets, watching him like slurp a plate of linguini. You know, and, and then get back up on stage and play. And, you know, it was just, it's a very sort of human experience of, of seeing these guys and getting to interact interact with them. Did you feel confident going up and saying hi to any of these guys? Or you just kind of played the background? I think I've probably always been unbelievably arrogant about approaching masters. but Arrogant? Yeah, like just wanting to go up and talk to them. I've gone up and talked to tons of people. I mean, this is a long history now, but I mean, one thing I will say is I had no rush to become like an actual cat on the scene or something like that. But um, I supported myself. I was played for dance classes, I played for comedy sports, I played in a tango band with Pablo Aslan and Raul Harena. That was an incredible experience. Mm -hmm. I actually then ended up, you know, working for Mark Morris in the Mark Morris Dance Group. I was his musical director for five years. Mm -hmm. And that was an incredible experience. All through those years, I was like, well, someday I'll be a jazz pianist. I kept on working on it. You know, I was like, there was a moment where I remember I hid all my Herbie Hancock and McCoy Tyner records because I was like, I really want to make sure what I'm doing 
doesn't have an overt reference to that sound because I was aware that in New York in the early 90s, that's what everybody played like. That's really changed since then. But at that time, so I was like, okay, I'm not going to play like those guys. Don't listen to... So you actively chose not to listen to those musicians. Yeah, which in retrospect was perhaps a mistake. But they still had plenty to teach me, but I was just wherever I was. you know. And then I sort of got much further into classical music. You know, I had an experience with Billy Hart. We played on a project together. And the minute I heard Billy Hart, I was like, I need someone like this. I need an actual consecrated genius of jazz Uh to teach me about this stuff. About jazz? Yes. Yeah. And I, ever since then, I've done what I could to carry his drums around and just be next to him and play with him and learn Mm -hmm. what what it actually is all about. I mean, there's no, there's been no one so important. What year was that you first played with him? Late 90s, maybe. Must have been about 99, I guess. Uh-huh. There's there's one little trio record with, with Reed Anderson and Billy Hart. It's it's okay. Billy sounds amazing on it. I, <laughs> I, can't, I can't say that. I've done a lot of records with, you know, consecrated jazz cats and... I can't say that I always sound so good on the records, but I'm pr- I'm proud that they always sound good. That's right. the point. These are original compositions you guys were playing. In that case, yes, I guess it was a lot of original stuff. Right, and and when you hear yourself and you don't feel that you sound that spectacular, uh, is that within the context of you being you know a forty something year old man now looking back and hearing your naivete? Is it uh, objective, sort of like oh, I was just fucking notes up, or what is it? I mean, I knew at the time it wasn't that good, but I didn't know <laughs> any other way to to try to learn it. Right. But did you have an, a feeling of like, well, if Billy Hart's playing with me, obviously I've got something going? No, because he'll play with anybody. Okay. <laughs> and when you met him, you were aware, completely aware of who he was as a, as a master? Well, yeah, I grew up listening to him. Yeah. But also, the first, I'm sure almost everyone who plays with Billy Hart, or anyone like that, you know, whatever. It's like one of the great jazz drummers. There aren't so many. Right. You know, if you, the first, in my opinion, it's pretty obvious the first time you play with one of the actual cats. You know? Uh-huh. Yeah. So, you know, I think it's pretty obvious to everybody. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But, so when you say, I need to be around someone like Billy Hart to really learn this music, how much of it is experiential? Not just, you know, what the notes are and, and how to swing, but being around that person and and interacting with them it's a great question it's not just the notes mm-hmm. for sure i do think jazz you know really great jazz is very hard to define mm-hmm. and i think it's because it's a collection of individuals but I do think any of those individuals, if you're actually in the presence of any of those actual master individuals, the questions are answered. Mm-hmm. What the heck this is? Mm-hmm. You know, it's like, okay, that's right. Just try to do whatever they do. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, maybe do it in your own way. Don't mo- you know, mock or just imitate them slavishly. But, you know, whatever that perspective is, is probably correct. Right. Yeah. Right. And 
you started so the the bad plus started in what 99 2000 first gig was in 2001 2001 and the band started as a collective yep and that that was really dave king's doing in a way because reed and i were both in the late 90s leading groups with each other as sidemen and then dave had a group in minneapolis called happy apple yeah i saw them i saw them with taborn i think is that possible I'm not sure. Okay. But All right. Anyway, he he was hip to the, you know, collective situation, which comes more from rock than jazz. Yeah, absolutely, it does. And I and so that was a that it was great to do that. And was uh, that idea appealing to you to have a a, a group? Uh, absolutely, because I think something that can get overlooked in the history books is how much it was always a collective music, even when it's under some guy's name. The John Coltrane Quartet needs McCoy Tyner, Jimmy Garrison, and Elvin Jones. Mm-hmm. You know, and I think that group might have stayed together longer if it could have somehow been acknowledged by society that that's really what it was. You know, I mean, I feel see, I only I feel like any music musician that you and I talk to is gonna would say exactly what you just said that that music requires Elvin Jones and Jimmy Garrison and. At, do you, do you, was that not recognized by the world of listeners? If you look at the periodicals of the time, yeah, they don't it, they don't say that. It was John Coltrane's genius that made the group, yeah. right? McCoy time in particular, I think, given the level of his contribution, was not at all recognized. Mm-hmm. You know, in the press anyway, he's even misspelled on the cover of Africa Brass. Right. Which is his voicings that he gave to Eric Dolphy. Eric Dolphy got the credit for arranging it. I mean, he deserves some credit. Sure. But it was all hit McCoy's harmonic language, and he didn't get credit for the voicings, and his name is given as McCoy Turner on the record. So it's like, these things matter. Now that I've been in a band and see how catastrophic, you know, the stuff can feel like, I have more sympathy. That, that seems like not a big deal. No, it's a huge deal. But it, I actually know it's a big deal. Right. So with this observation, were, were you taking this thinking into the group mindset of like, let's avoid one guy getting singled out and let's look, let's build a group language? It was pretty organic, but I'll, I will say that I think there are a lot of pianists eager to lead a trio as soon as they can. Yeah. And I was sort of under understand that energy but i always loved bass and drums so much and thought they were so crucial to the music Uh so in that sense i was really ready to have a group that was a collective right i mean the piano trio is there that's a very heavy tradition certainly is um trying to think who so who else was around at the time were you looking were you did you were you at any time interested in modesky martin and wood no John Modeski is one of my favorite musicians in a pop context. I know if there's yeah. some song on the radio and there's some beautiful, crazy piano in the background, it's John Modeski. Yeah. He's a bad cat. Yeah, 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 yeah. But that's a group that, you know, I actually think they have incredible versatility, but, you know, the jam band scene is pretty toxic as far as my aesthetic goes. I agree. I don't know that they ever, I mean, they found themselves there. I don't think they drove themselves there. They stayed there, though. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so when that band first started playing, 
I mean, did you, was there a feeling of sacrifice? Because in the history of jazz, in the tradition of jazz, it's always the, you know, the so-and-so quartet. And No, no, no. I was totally into it. And no, no sacrifice whatsoever. I, every, all the success that Bat Plus had blew my mind. I, ex, I expected to toil in obscurity my whole life. Uh-huh. I still do, frankly. Right, <laughs> no. but you, you earn but a living this, and you pay your bills. But... but you know, so all of that explosion of publicity and stuff in 2003 with the Bat Plus was a profound. It shock. happened in 2003. Yeah. And what happened? I got to be honest with you. I've never heard the Bat Plus. <laughs> I know the name. Well, I don't really know why you're talking to me. I guess I said uh, I said I wanted to publicize my gig, which I'm going to do right now. <laughs> On September 12th, I am playing with Ron Carter and Billy Hart at the jazz standard that's why i want to sneak in this my first podcast ever you've never done a podcast no well one of the reasons so to answer the question you just asked perhaps rhetorically one of the reasons i I was really interested in talking to you is i personally have felt like when i do things that are related to music but not music whether you know i used to manage the stone for a number of years i've done a hundred and some odd episodes of a podcast i feel like am i damaging my own creative momentum am i creating a perception of myself for other people that is damaging to myself as a musician because i'm participating in some aspect of music that isn't music and i was looking around i was like well who else has this public persona of of doing something that is some like you know some i get media requests from record labels for this thing that I record in my apartment where I'm just talking to musicians. And you were one of the first people I thought of because of the series of interviews that you've done, because of the blog, and because right. of your outspokenness. Um, okay, well, so I'll, since you don't know about the Bad Plus, I'll explain briefly. In 2003, we were signed to Columbia Records by Yves Beauvais, one of the last really cool A&R people, I think. Yves Beauvais. Yves Beauvais. He... He uh, produced the Ornette Coleman box set, Beauty is a Rare Thing, uh-huh. and also the Led Zeppelin box set on Atlantic. Those are both two of the coolest box sets, and so it was a real honor to be associated with Eve anyway. Right. For some reason, we hit the right sort of flavor of the month. These are the Vistas. The first record sold 100,000 copies and was written up uh, in all the magazines, including, you know, anti bad plus screeds and one of the magazines there was like three pieces about us like one pro one anti one addressing race in the same publication yeah okay esquire wrote about saying like we were going to make jazz relevant again there were the on tower records on west fourth there was a huge photo of our the cover of our album in the light booth there Mm -hmm. you know it was crazy uh part of the success was not just the music but it was also engineered by Chad Blake, so it had a real sort of pop production. The first three albums all had real impact coming out of your stereo, I think. So, mm-hmm. in I mean, I don't know if this is true or not, but what we said was that in college dorms, you know, you could be listening to whatever you were listening to, and a Bad Plus record came on. It wasn't a step down in intensity. Right. It stayed in intensity. Now, this was also right before file sharing hit. So um, we had this sort of magic moment where people actually had to buy a record mm-hmm. to listen to it. So we were flavor of the month and everyone had to buy a record. So 
I believe in our music. It's been I'm leaving at the end of the year. It's been an incredible run, but there's no doubt in my mind anyway. I don't know what Reed or Dave would say about it, but it's been the whole thing was really set up by this sort of magic moment of controversy and excitement in 2003 and like it just sort of broke us open, you know. And we've toured constantly since then. Mm-hmm. Now, when I got the call from Evo Vey saying it's approved that the record was approved, mm-hmm. I saw the whole thing happening. I saw this is going to go wide because I could see already that people were responding very positively. So, I went out and uh, I remember I got drunk. I was drinking gin gimlets and I was apologizing to Sonny Clark and Mary Lou Williams and my heroes who didn't get this chance. Mm -hmm. So anyway, I wanted to start about a year later. I was like, Okay, there's the blogosphere. I started reading these blogs and I thought, oh my God, here's a platform where somehow I'm in this famous band. I can share with our fans. There's a long tradition of great jazz. Right. So that was really the impetus in some way was to be like, okay, this happened. This piece of luck happened, but I want to I give something back to my masters. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. There's a feeling of guilt. Guilt is too strong. Uh-huh. But it was you know, I'm filled with self-doubt. Did you feel like you deserved this success, this recognition, this opportunity? I'll tell you this much. I've been pretty disappointed in jazz since I moved to New York. In the music? In the music. Okay. And I knew the Bad Plus had something really right about it. Anyone could go to a Bad Plus show and dig it. Uh It was not insular, nerdy music that you couldn't bring your romantic partner to and hope them to like it Mm -hmm. a lot of the time. Mm -hmm. And, you know... I think the music desperately needs to light that kind of fire that anyone can see, Mm -hmm. you know? So, because I think that's also what Thelonious Monk or John Coltrane or Miles Davis or Duke Ellington, any of those guys, if you look at a video of that music when it was really great, there's incredible communicative power. Mm -hmm. Just out of the gate, boom. Mm -hmm. And I think, you know, egotistically, the Bad Plus has some of that. I mean, no question. I mean, so, so you know, I'm just like, in that sense, uh, there was absolutely no guilt. In right. fact, I want, you know, I was, there's, I think we were a wake-up call for some people. I uh-huh. think some young musicians have followed our lead and stopped doing some stupid stuff about their jazz presentation. You know, I mean, God, God bless, if that's true. I think it's a positive influence. Some stupid stuff. Yeah, like always having sheet music of your... On the stage, right. you know, by never, you know, having more of a band ethos. Yeah. You know? 
ha- having a bit more just basic outreach. Uh-huh. You know, not having 14-minute songs where everyone takes eight chorus solos. <laughs> right. You know, there's a, a big influence in the Bad Plus, at least for me, is uh, Ama Jamal, who was just so listenable. It was so deep with Israel Crosby and Vernal Fournier, but it was so listenable. Mm-hmm. And so song based, and that's the bad plus too. Right, and and how much of when you when when you're structuring a set, you're thinking about you know an hour long concert presentation. Um, I mean, are you thinking about like the the arc of the set? You know, where you know which pieces are going to allow you to stretch out to fourteen minutes? Which part of the set needs should have a three minute piece? Like, is that conscientious? I mean, I think all musicians write sets based on this stuff. I don't think they do. I mean, I, I think, as you said just a few minutes ago, you know, I've, well, I've observed I mean, some pretty... Well, I mean, the, you know, the, the ones that have careers do. Right. Sorry, there's a lot of construction in my building right now. The ones who have careers do, I'm sure. Nothing unique in the bad plus process that way. Right. Right. Um, I, I, I don't want to ask the same question twice, but, you know, you, you've been able to... Have you... You've been able to accept that you deserve the success that you've gotten. I mean, yes, of course. Yeah. I've cashed every check. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> so, 17 years with the band, and you're leaving. Have you ever left a relationship of this duration, of this intensity in your life? Oh, no. Of course not. I mean, I left my first wife. That was all, but much shorter, I mean, I'm sure. 17 years is a long time, you know? Yeah. And these are very crucial years. These are years of, I mean, you gave your 20s and 30s to this music. Well, it, we hit when I was 30. Okay. So, yeah. And looking forward after this band, I mean, do you see... I, I've left a few things in the last few years. Actually, I left my wife. Um I'm very delighted to say that we were able to work things out. Uh, it was a terrifying process. I left a job that I was at for many years, um, and I've really come to honor the fact that if you want to open a new chapter, you have to often close a chapter to get there. And when you're looking ahead, do you, what, what, what kind of feelings do you have? Excitement? Sadness? Is it all of these things? Well, I mean, I'm really looking forward uh, to next year, a lot of great stuff is happening, and uh, I'm hoping there's going to be a little more time around my head to be sort of like think about my future masterworks or whatever. You know, right. I mean, I I think I still have a real contribution to make, and it's tough with three leaders in the band. You know, we we probably started out we weren't all on the same page, okay, but you didn't notice it. And then over the years, it becomes more and more apparent just how different you feel about things. Mm-hmm. You know, and I know for a fact that, like, Reed and Dave really think I'm hard to deal with, you know, and they'll be happy not to deal with me and I'll be happy not to deal with them next year. You're talking about interpersonal workings. Yeah. But yeah. even music, too. You know, yeah. it's, it's a... 
you know, I'm very proud that the Bat Plus always sounds like the Bat Plus no matter what we're playing. Whether we're playing an original or the Rite of Spring or one of the rock covers or whatever, it's immediately got this thing, the sound of these three big personalities. Uh-huh. And it meets in the middle and it's this thing. I'm almost, I almost think it's a genre. Like Bad Plus, that's a genre. It has something incredibly powerful. Uh-huh. But at the same time, for me, the statement is, has, it was made. I'm not going to find, I'm not going to be able to create my next masterpieces within that framework. You know, I, the framework of an egalitarian group. Of, well, of those two aesthetics meeting my aesthetics on an equal plane. Right. I'd love to have collaborators, but that was enough with those two. Right. Are you looking forward to having a, uh, one, uh, more control over the projects that you're working with? Are you, are you, does the idea of, of a band of equals is that interesting to you at all anymore no i think it definitely could be i'm not really sure i mean well like two of the things i'm doing next year one of them is uh, it's already premiered i wrote a score for mark morris Uh called pepperland and the city of liverpool hired a bunch of artists to respond to 50 years of Sgt. Pepper. And I've always thought Beatles tributes were, frankly, atrocious. Mm -hmm. But Mark Morris is a genius, and he asked me to come up with an idea. And um, I wrote, I arranged six Beatles pieces and wrote six pieces for a, hour-long review and you know my first draft that i handed in it was a little dark yeah and and mark was like you know what this needs to be a little a little more bright and up tempo you know dark in what way (laughs) well i mean i think the natural thing is when you deconstruct pop or rock is actually to slow it down and make it more dissonant yeah that's and that's even true if Billie Holiday sings a song from Broadway. That's what she did too. Like that's just the tradition of doing it. Right. So it's like okay, that was so. My point is, in this situation, I was happy to work with a master as a disciple still, or as a he. You know, he has a dominance. I'm tr- really trying to hook up something there. Now the end end up the. The resultant score was actually very personal. It's, it was a huge hit in England. We're going to tour it a lot over the next couple of years. I'm very proud of it. And it's really stamped with my uh, fingerprints. I think it shocked a lot of people how much it isn't a normal Beatles tribute project. Mm-hmm. But, uh, you know, that's an example of a collaboration where I'm second banana and happy to be so. Mm-hmm. I'll be playing more with Billy Hart. I'm happy to be second banana to Billy Hart in perpetuity. And you play you, Ron Carter? Is that who's playing bass? Well, that's just for this one trio. Sure, but... But, I mean, but um, his, he has a quartet with Mark Turner, Ben Street, and myself uh-huh. that I helped put together. That's been together almost 15 years now, too. Yeah. And, um, but yeah, 
I can play with Billy, keep playing with him. You know. Now, on the other hand, I'm, pl- I'm writing my first piano concerto for the American Composers Orchestra. That's uh, premiering in April. And you're going to be performing. Yeah. Uh-huh. And that's the ultimate statement in I am the dominant force here. Yeah, totally. So that's a, you know, I can see all these different things working out. You know, I think I'm open to all sorts of possibilities. And maybe at some point there'll be a real, uh, another trio collaboration. It's hard for me to imagine. Right. But uh, I can't, I can't rule it out. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I think those kinds of collaborations tend to happen when people are a bit younger. Probably. Um, I, I'm not against having two 25-year-old geniuses and just telling them what to do, man. That sounds like a lot of fun. I think that's a, that's a pretty common uh, approach know, I, for a I'm lot not of against that. I'm not against that at this particular moment. But we'll see what happens. Right. Now, I want to ask you about the blog. and So you've been doing this since 2003? Do the math? I think it, maybe it was 2005 when I started. Yeah. And... <sighs> How do you sort of reconcile that part of your output with the musical output? When I first started writing, I found it extraordinarily easy. Mm-hmm. I've always been a big reader, and I never wrote a thing before. You know, I mean, like a paper in high school or something. You sure, know sure. I mean? Hardly anything. But the minute I started writing about the music, it was incredibly easy. It just came out easier than practicing, easier than composing. Mm-hmm. So, I also really lo- always loved reading about the music. You know, Charles Rosen. I love Charles Rosen. Mm-hmm. You know, I love looking at CPE box book. You know, Dave Liebman, the great jazz tenor saxophonist, wrote books about jazz. You know, I read those avidly. Yeah, that stuff was always part of whatever my whole musical situation. So. I started to do it on the internet, and it was just so fun and easy. I just kept doing it. I uh, got a lot better over the years. I've taken the blog down twice and replaced it with a whole new system, partially to banish the old writing. <laughs> oh, because you, re- you rewrite it and yeah. said, oh, God. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. I mean, the first couple of years were pretty rough on sure. the, on the I mean, prose tip. And yeah. then... Uh, I mean, there's still plenty of heavy editing that could be done on stuff at, at Do The Math. My wife is a great writer, Sarah Damming, and she's been a wonderful editor. I've learned, I mean, if anyone's been my teacher about basic prose in the last decade, she's been that teacher. Right. But the sort of culmination recently was I had a piece published in the New Yorker Culture Desk about Duke Ellington and Bill Evans. Right. And... Actually, a literary agent suggested that on my way to writing a book that I try to place some articles in the mainstream press, and I found that happened. So that was but like that's functioning too. Wait, are, you, are you writing a book? I'm planning to, yeah. Okay, but that's the. Um, I think I'll be doing a few more of those sort of you know, general publication articles on the way to sort of getting a book deal and working with an editor and really trying to produce a truly valuable, like whatever, my opinion about jazz. It's going to be a official. It'll be... <laughs> it won't be blog round. It'll rambles. be all new material. It won't be sourced from no, previous writers. No, there's plenty. Well, you know, I've barely written about 
the truly greatest years of jazz on Which my blog. Were? Well, you know, whatever you want to say, 1930 through the death of John Coltrane or something like that. Right. And that's going to be what the book is. One of the things that I need to address is I don't have a set structure. You know, Alex Ross did such a beautiful job with The Rest is Noise. It's uh-huh. such a readable sort of narrative. I may end up just straight up emulating that. Uh-huh. But he sort of tries to cover a lot in there. I don't know. I don't know if I could really do that. You know, uh, I, the structure remains to be seen uh, for my first book. Right. I only read music books that are written by musicians. Fair enough. Uh, I. I mean, what, what are, what's an example of a book of musical criticism not by music besides Alex Ross that that you feel like is a valuable tool or a valuable resource? I well, should say. What I would just say is, there's hardly any jazz books written by musicians. Right. Which is, I think, one of the reasons I've been able to sort of walk in there the way I have and do the math is that it was. I wouldn't say unprecedented, but relatively rare for a practitioner to try to talk about the tap, the nuts and bolts. Mm-hmm. And for a practitioner to go to master practitioners and say, what the heck are you doing? Help me out here. You know, which is essentially all those interviews are me trying to learn something about the music. Mm-hmm. I really go to the people I've spoken to, Cedar Walton, George Cables, whoever, and be like, I want to learn something, you know, uh-huh. as a younger practitioner. Right, right, know? right, right, right. So that I think was, again, probably not unprecedented, but the sheer word count at this point on Do the Math is definitely unprecedented. It is, and something that just... I'm gonna, I'm always trying to pick my words very carefully. I feel, and this is part of what my nervousness is, is at this point with 150 of these recorded conversations, I feel like I have revealed quite a bit of my own ignorance. I've revealed quite a bit of my own um, insecurities, pettiness, a lot of unattractive qualities that someone who's releasing music would normally try to not put out there. And when a music critic writes something that, irritates or ruffles the feathers of musicians there is this line of like well i'm not a musician i'm a music critic and i that's part of my nervousness is that i have demonstrated (laughs) that i a have lots of shortcomings all over the place b um have I separated myself from the pack in some way that is perhaps unhealthy for myself? Because in some way I've now become part of this other, you know what I'm saying? Like there are these, these, these boundaries that people maintain. It's a great point. What you're raising, what you're raising, you know, I, if it weren't so easy for me to do it, it's truly of the things that I do the blogging part, the writing part of it, the interviewing part, that's the easy part. I feel the same way about stuff that so, I do. So, like, if it if it weren't so easy for me, I think I would have stopped it. Because it, it, I have had those moments of, like, what is the schizophrenia here? You know, there's right. real potential schizophrenia. Now, I will say, in terms of... Okay, 
Cedar Walton's almost always the guy I, I bring up, mm-hmm. who I interviewed and I've written about a bit on on my blog. You know, Cedar Walton, who's died a few years ago, I'm confident never got the props from any critical establishment, mm-hmm. considering the level of his genius. Mm-hmm. So the the extent that the New York Times obit was a shame, and. He's someone that really the jazz musicians know is great. But I'm not saying he doesn't have any kind of popular following. I think he did, but among serious jazz fans. But, you know, if you talk to almost any consecrated swinging jazz musician, they think Cedar Walton is one of the Ten Commandments. Mm -hmm. So... Again, it becomes almost like this personal responsibility issue. It's like, if I ain't going to do it, who's going to do right. It? You, it? Right. You have to take control of the narrative as much as you can. You know, I I can't help with Harvey and Houston, but maybe I can help with right. getting the record straight about Cedar Walton. I, I, feel, I, I feel so strongly about what you just said, and... There are, again, yes, yes. I, I know plenty of people who are young and alive and working really hard who should people should be hearing more of. And I have a listenership of, you know, the numbers are sort of hard to know, but generally about 10,000 people a week. Mm-hmm. Great. Um, I feel very strongly that, 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 that yes, I should be able, there, people should be hearing about this stuff and they should be hearing about it in a way that's very unfiltered. Um, too frequently, I feel like people's features in notable publications become achievements rather than interesting documents. People, you know, musicians perceive them that way. A feature in the Times, you know. So there's it's and it's it's so filtered, it's so thought about that something really gets lost. To me, this aspect of of creativity of of the of the conversation of the narrative should have an aspect of the same way concerts and records are never they're never what they're never a final statement they're they're converse they're, they're stops along the way you know that's something that that's always been important in jazz is that you're supposed to hear growth you're supposed to hear mistakes you're supposed to hear yourself you know when you're 25 and hear the way you were playing and not identify with it i feel like that could be translated to this medium, whether it's podcasting or blogging, is that you should be able, you should disagree with something you said ten years earlier. Right, that makes sense. Filter is a great point. I mean, I'm in a there's a real it can be very odd sometimes watching certain talking points sort of go through the media, and it's mm-hmm. like, well, everyone's sort of on like agreement like this is the sort of way we're talking about but if you go to the bar and hang out with the cats it's a completely different conversation right you know and that's like that's telling you know i think it was probably a little bit always that way that's why i brought up mccoy tyner with coltrane Uh uh-huh you know because it's like the cats were like wow i'll do anything to imitate mccoy tyner he became the most influential piano player right in a a couple of days essentially Mm -hmm. and you know the critical fraternity or whoever was writing the stuff was just like treating him as if he was uh Wynton Kelly or something. Yeah, just yeah, right. You know, and it was like that was that 
the I guess that's, that's not really filter, but I, I do think these kinds of what the musicians are actually saying and what the critical people are saying, you know, there can be a pretty d- big disconnect. And uh, now that everyone is on display publicly, I think it's harder and ever, harder than ever to be honest. You look at the downbeats and jazz from the 50s and 60s, they're quite openly critical of each other. Yeah. You know, and that doesn't seem really possible anymore. I mean, at the same time, I feel like behind closed doors, people are like so severely critical of each other that, you know, it feels like a fucking landmine field out there, you know? That's true. No, it's 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 really true. I I haven't solved that particular issue yet. There's been times when I thought I almost want to be critical of people who are public figures, almost peers or something, and I never really can pull the trigger. You know? I don't think it's good. I have no. people that I feel very critical of, um, and at one in you know this thing that we're doing right now has evolved a bit over the years. There were a few times that I would openly say things on here about people. And that's something I regret regret quite a lot, mm-hmm. and it's it's not productive. I think it's okay to talk about what structures are in place that have allowed, you know, certain people to 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 climb the mountain, and whether or not those structures are healthy, whether or not they contribute to to momentum in the creative practice. But I don't I don't want to call people out. I don't think that's my responsibility, and I don't think it's good for anyone. Early on, and do the math. I had a quick, just a few sentences, really quick interview with Jason Moran where we were just talking about piano players and one of our favorite pianists was Jerry Allen and we both play like Jerry Allen. Mm-hmm. We're both very influenced by her. But we we both sort of said something like that we're really into the early Jerry Allen and we're a little... You know, a little disappointed by later Jerry Allen, mm-hmm. which is, I think, kind of uncontroversial statement, really. Sure. It's also just an opinion. But I think we both felt, we didn't realize that the internet was like the record or something, you know? <laughs> and like, I'm sure I'm sure she saw it and maybe felt bad. Like, if I made Jerry Allen feel bad, I really feel terrible Did you know her? You know, I met her a few times over the years. She actually complimented me on Do the Math. She, mm-hmm. she said she loved Do the Math. So she didn't hold it against me. Right. But at the same time, that was the one thing. And now she's, of course, passed away this year. It's so tragic. I, that was the one thing I said. I'm pretty sure Jason would say the same thing. It's like, we were young and dumb. We didn't know right. that for sure she would read it. You and know? that her feelings might be hurt. Or, right, yeah. yeah. And we said it out of love in the sense that I think also in the conversation was how much we were influenced by her, but it was like, that was, that just was an early mistake, I would say. Yeah. Yeah. And, and you're still going with do the math. You still putting stuff up with quite a frequency. Can't seem to stop. I mean, now that I'm writing, thinking about articles for mainstream publications and looking towards writing a book, I don't know about the future of do the math I'm actually thinking of some some kind of transition I mean what I haven't done is I haven't done what you've been doing Mm -hmm. talking to important younger people Mm -hmm. my focus has been very myopic 
on what I, who I personally judge to be the masters. What's more focused in that way? You know, so at the same time, the scene desperately needs help. And if do the math can help, then maybe I have even more responsibility right. to the scene than to Cedar Walden. I mean, I don't know. Who knows? But I've, I've been thinking about next year trying to engage with my community in a way which I frankly haven't. I haven't really engaged with my community. I've mostly engaged with uh, elders. Engaging, you're talking specifically through Do the Math or through yeah. some platform. Yeah, I mean, I've only interviewed with with like a couple of exceptions. I've pretty much only interviewed um, my, you know, elders, and I've pretty much written my big long essays about dead people. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I wrote a big birthday tribute to Jerry Allen for her 60th. She was still alive. And then she died a week later. I was really heartbroken about that because I wanted her to read it. It was a very loving tribute in my mind. And I I sort of wanted to try to set the record straight in my opinion about a few things. Yeah. And and I really wanted her to read it. And uh, I don't know if she did. And then she died. It was a big drag. Yeah. She, I I never, I never met her. And, you know, I haven't spent much time with her music but from what i've gathered from a lot of people i know she was a pretty uh angelic and important person she was very private i think she had a lot on her plate inside yeah you know i didn't know her well but i don't know i think but you know one of the things i say is no one has an easy life that's true even if you're even if you're a millionaire doesn't mean you're having an easy life right it's true. Um, so I'm going to put this up on Monday. What is your gig? That's it's at the Jazz Standard. It's a Jazz at the Jazz Standard, September 12th. And yeah, I guess I've met Ron a little bit. I finally called him for a gig. <laughs> you know, it's funny. There was this new club in town, Mesro, and I know the owner, Spike, and he said, "You want to bring in somebody like for a classic piano." bass drums sorry classic piano bass situation like a New York club like the famous one was Bradley's but there was also Knickerbockers you know plenty of piano bass duo room duo rooms over the years of which now Mesro is wonderful Mm -hmm. and I was thinking about the bassists who I would call and I suddenly said well I guess I could call Ron Carter. I'm quoted in his book. He he knows me enough yeah. and what I've written about him that I'm I'm in his autobiography. Okay. And I just sort of figured, well, you know, Ron, there was a time when he played two record sessions in the afternoon and did a gig every night for 40 years or something. Mm-hmm. Maybe he still wants to come out and play with a young cat, you know. And so he did, and it was truly phenomenal i mean i was definitely a better we played six sets right away at the top i mean i can't even believe this but yes i got six sets with ron carter to kick my ass right at right at the top there and i was definitely a better piano player at the end of the six sets than going in it was like every set i was a little better but like incrementally it was already impressive but really there was a jump yeah 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 you know, and I've, I've done a couple more gigs with him and a 
record with him and Nasheed Waits. It's it's okay. It, I think he sounds great on it. He and Nasheed really sound good on it. It's called The Purity of the, the Turf. And, uh, of course, I know Billy forever. And the, essentially, this minute I started having a bit of a relationship with Ron Carter, I was sort of fiending for a chance to play with them together. I have a joke about this, and, and I hope they don't hear this. I'm presumably Ron Carter and Billy Hart are not listening to this po- podcast, but I do have a specific joke about this, which is that in a video game, you play level after level, you know, right. and you get through all this, and then there's the final boss. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And so for me, this is the final boss. Yeah. Playing no rehearsal, standards in the blues with Ron Carter and Billy Hart. <laughs> if I can do that, then I defeated the final boss. you mastered boss. the game, yeah. yeah. I, I don't know you if I mastered the, the game. You beat the game. But the, I, yeah. at least, you know, I don't know if I'll feel like, uh, you know, to go back to this theory that part of my strange relationship is trying to fill some holes. Mm-hmm. You know, holes that I wish I didn't have that may have that may fill a certain it, hole it, it's possible so, you know tab a into slot a right there okay final boss playing blues in the closet with ron carter and billy hart okay that's probably i uh, actually believe it will fill holes <laughs> I, I i try to fill holes by buying boots and jackets and shit and right, that's right. like the worst attempt but i do believe that playing with masters fills holes yeah no questions know. asked and those guys are undisputed masters for sure they are mike tyson and the mike tyson punch out <laughs> i'm more of a glass joe improviser <laughs> anyone can play with me <laughs> man i'm really glad you came over and talked to me Thank you so much. Thank you, ma'am. Very cool. All right, Ethan. All right, that was Ethan Iverson. Did you guys enjoy that? I did. He's a thoughtful guy. He's an interesting guy. Uh, I feel like we could probably do many more podcasts and have it go in lots of different ways because I uh, I think he's a thinker. And if you're around on September 12th, uh, try to get down to the Jazz Standard. Check him out. He'll be there with Billy Hart and Ron Carter. Masters. If you want to find out more about Ethan and check out his blog, which is called Do the Math, go to ethaniverson.com. And if you are enjoying this show, please consider rating and reviewing it in iTunes. That shit helps. It actually does. Go to iTunes, search for the 5049 podcast, and, uh, and say what's up. That's it, man. I hope you guys are all doing well, and uh, we'll talk to you next week.